You're listening to So Much Pingle, the podcast about herpetology, field herping, and anything and everything about amphibians and reptiles. Join us each week as Mike and his guests explore the amazing world of herps across our planet. And now, bringing a half century of experience and perspective to the microphone, here's your host, Mike Pingleton. Well, hi there, everyone, and welcome to the show. Mike Pingleton here, and I am your host for these proceedings. Here we go with episode 57, and I hope you all remain safe and healthy out there. So I'm sitting here sipping my morning coffee and staring out at the bleak, frozen landscape that is my backyard. It has been a rough February here in central Illinois with temps in the teens or in single digits most days, and capped off by periodic ice storms and blizzards and nasty things like that. I am so ready for this winter to be over, and I'm hoping for a break soon. I mean, at this point, even temperatures in the 30s and 40s would be welcome and uh, might pave the way for some salamander activity in my area. I know it's coming, but uh, I'm a little impatient, as I know many of you are as well. Now, before we get to the episode, I want to thank all of the folks who support this entertainment channel through both Patreon and direct donations. Your contributions help to keep the show rolling along, and I really appreciate all of you. And if you're listening and you would like to kick in a few bucks, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. Oh, and I need to repeat one programming note. Have you ever had a weird, bizarre, or unusual experience in the field? So I have been collecting some stories along these lines for a future episode And it still needs more. Uh, Let's be clear. By weird, bizarre, and unusual, I don't mean tragic or violent. Uh, We don't need any of that. Uh, But it could be something, you know, like a vanishing hitchhiker. You know, I've already recorded one story about a man who wasn't there. But, you know, it also doesn't have to be something spooky or supernatural or anything like that. But if something strange or weird or unusual or funky happened to you in the field, Feel free to get in touch with me. Uh, we can talk about it, or you can share it in email if you like. And for uh, reference, this is February of 2022, as I mentioned, and I will be collecting stories for the next six months or so. We'll see how it goes. Okay, my guest this week is Ben Stagenga, a biologist who lives and works in Georgia, and he gets to work with some very charismatic herbs, uh, including indigo snakes and spotted turtles, and of course, the stars of this episode, alligator snapping turtles. So Ben is a really busy person with his field work, and uh, I was lucky to get an interview with him just before his survey season ramped up and you know put him completely out of touch for this kind of thing. So let's get to my interview with Ben. Hello again, everyone. Welcome back to the show. And uh, on this episode, it's my pleasure to talk with Ben Staganga. Welcome to the show, Ben. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, excited to be here. Uh, I'm excited to have you as a guest. Uh, you and I know each other a little bit. Uh, I hate to say it, but the, the, all roads lead back to Peru, of course. Indeed. <laughs> so our uh, first time we met was uh, uh, you came down to Peru a few years ago. I think, uh, I want to say 2018 or 2019? 2019. 2019. So we got to uh, hang out and uh, get to know each other a little bit and uh, had a good time. And uh, I knew eventually I wanted to talk to you. Uh, because you're doing some really cool work with alligator snapping turtles, or 
I suppose we should uh, go by their the name of the species you're working with, which is yeah. the Swanee alligator snapping turtle, correct? Yeah, yeah, Macrochelys swaneensis. Yes, very exciting. Uh, so, but before we get into that, I'm hoping that uh, we can talk a little bit about how. I always like to start and find out how folks got into amphibians and reptiles. So why don't you give us a little bit of your background? To, like, how did you get into it and how you went, where do you went to school for uh, you know, biology and whatnot? And what, you know, what's your credentials and that kind of thing. So can you kind of give that, give us a lowdown on that? Sure. Yeah. Um, so I am originally from Minnesota, um, but I spent most of my time in the Blue Ridge Mountains of South Carolina. Uh, so that's kind of the northwestern corner of the state. Okay. And uh, I was fortunate uh, to have uh, to grow up at a state park. My dad was an interpretive ranger, a pretty special place, Table Rock State Park. And uh, so I actually grew up there in park housing right on the premises. Both my parents are naturalists. And so, you know, I was just kind of immersed in um, nature from a young age. Uh, some of my earliest memories are actually... Uh, like on vacation with my parents uh, along the coast and we're bird watching. Um, so wow. you know, I, I was, you know, I was carrying binoculars around when I was like five years old. So, so it's kind of a foregone conclusion for you. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was destined. There was, there's was no escaping it. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, so I was kind of, you know, always, it was the norm to, you know, be outside and, you know, looking at bugs and all sorts of stuff, lizards and frogs. And, um, yeah, right around fifth or sixth grade, I really got bit by the bug of reptiles and amphibians. And part of that was because I had, you know, I had some friends who uh, kept snakes and my dad had ran a small nature center. So he had a corn snake in there and uh, we all got to, got permission to bring these snakes to school. And uh, it was right around then when I had the realization that uh, most people did not consider having snakes normal, nor did they appreciate being near them. So it was kind of an eye-opening experience to see like, man, people really don't like these things. I mean, they're super cool, but people don't see them the way I do. And so yeah. that that just made me get more obsessed by them. And uh, yeah. Yeah. Not not everybody has mom and dad. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, your, your mom, your dad, you, you had this upbringing to, that to you is normal, but then you sort of realize, oh heck, <laughs> not everybody is 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 blessed or privileged or however you want to call it uh, to yeah. have this upbringing. Yeah, and uh, so yeah, from there, you know, it just really kind of drove me to learn more about them and try to present them to people. Like I really wanted to share these animals with people, and uh, it just kind of snowballed. And I, I soon realized that I could actually find these animals in the wild. I could find water snakes and salamanders and stuff, you know, just outside my house um, consistently. Uh, before I would occasionally see them, but I actually learned how to find them consistently. And man, there was no, no holding me back after that. <laughs> and so then you went to school. Uh, tell us about your, your education. Yeah. So I, I went to a small university in uh, South Carolina called Southern Wesleyan University for my undergrad. And I got a, I majored in biology. And then from there, I went on to Clemson to do a master's ah. um, while I was. The Salamander University. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And while, so while I was, I guess it started in high school, um, there was a Clemson graduate student who's now Dr. Jeff Moore, who was working with timber rattlesnakes. Um, he had worked with them in Oklahoma and he was starting up a project in the upstate of South Carolina and he was looking for field sites and he came by the park, talked to my dad and, you know, he was just trying to find snakes so he could, you know, establish a project. And my brothers and I, you know, we, we hit the trail that weekend and uh, we found a couple snakes, weren't able to catch them. Um, but we like brought him out the following week. He caught the first three study animals for his project right there. And it was set in stone for like the next eight years, he would be doing some timber rattlesnake work in my backyard. And so I was really fortunate. He let me uh, be pretty involved with the project from, I guess I was 17 when it started um, all the way uh, into my graduate years uh, doing radio telemetry and um, various data collection on timber rattlesnakes. Very cool. I think I've read a paper or two of his along yeah, the way. Yeah, probably. Yeah, he's got a few. Um, yeah. Most of it has to do with timber rattlesnakes. But yeah, so that was, so he was at Clemson and his advisor actually ended up being my advisor. I kind of met uh, Dr. Rob Baldwin through uh, Dr. Moore and uh, he was my advisor at Clemson. And I, while there, I worked on uh, some amphibian work, um, looking at kind of landscape ecology, this wetland landscape, and looking at how amphibians use um, the permanent and the ephemeral water bodies, the different features, and how it you know, kind of just ties the landscape together and some niche partitioning between a couple of uh, ranid frogs. So, oh, cool. So you, you've, you're well-rounded and you've had some great mentors. Yes, yes. And uh, yeah, I'm lucky that it doesn't stop there. I've had a few really incredible mentors since then as well. Um, it's really guided me along. So how did you come to, to be involved with the Orient Society? Yeah, so um, I guess it was back, it was when I was in grad school. Uh, it was when I first heard about the Orient Society, um, probably through Facebook. And uh, I, I saw that they had these, we're starting to do these citizen science events called Places You Never Heard. And uh, at that point, you know, I really didn't have anyone to herp with. Like I'd herp with my brothers, got two younger brothers and growing up, we would do this stuff together, but none of my friends at school, like were into this, you know, I was kind of felt like a, <laughs> an oddity, a, kind of a sideshow attraction. Um, they now you're preaching it. to the choir. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. And so I thought, you know, this would be cool. You know, take my brother and my dad down and try to get on one of these events. And, um, I started going to them and started meeting like-minded people and made some really good friends at those events. And that just kind of snowballed. You know, I, I wanted more of it. I wanted to meet more people. I wanted to, you know, herp with these people. And, uh, I guess that happened for a couple years. Um, and through that, I got to meet Dirk Stevenson, which is a really well-known uh, herpetologist and naturalist down here in the Southeast. And, uh, you know, he kind of took me under his wing as well. And uh, when there was an opening, he reached out to me and said, hey, you know, why don't you apply for this? And it was kind of kind of been in the back of my mind. I wanted to work for a conservation organization, kind of like Orient. And so I went for it. And uh, here I am six years later. Awesome. So, and and Dirk is another fine gentleman. Dirk as is well. as good as good a guy as you could find. Um, I was really fortunate. I, you know, I'd grown up in the mountains. 
I didn't know much about the coastal plain herp community. I mean, I knew species, but I just wasn't very familiar with them, like how to find them and, you know, habitat types and all that stuff. And Dirk really took me under his wing and, you know, taught me most of what I know today. Um, so a lot of credit to him. When you first came on, what were you working on? Did you go right to the to the snapper work or did you work on other things first? So initially I came on just as a, a seasonal um, because that's what they had money for at the time. Um, they had a grant to do some spotted turtle telemetry. Uh, spotted turtles range from Canada all the way to Florida. Um, pretty wide ranging species, but poorly studied in the southeast and southern extent of their range. And so we were doing just basic telemetry, basic ecology, um, home range, thermal ecology type stuff. And so I tracked them from, when was it, like March through through the end of the year. Uh, so mm. a, full, a full kind of active season. Okay. And uh, fortunately, there was a, a position or I was able to stay on and work through indigo season that winter. Uh-huh. And at that point, we started getting more grants and, you know, it just kind of became, you know, I was I was established and I wasn't going anywhere. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. So y'all need to find work for me. Is that how, that how it was? <laughs> yeah, yeah, kind of. Because I, I didn't know where else I was going to go. <laughs> All right. So it sounds like you really enjoyed coming on to that, to the organization and uh, working your way into some interesting positions. Yeah, it's been really really fun. Um, yeah, I've worked a couple seasonal positions, other places, and it was, you know, three or four months here or there. Um, but you know, it was nice to, to stay in one place and then also get a nice diversity of projects because any given year I'm working on three to four different projects with pretty charismatic species. Um, so, you know, right now I'm in indigo snake season and we're also surveying for Eastern diamondback rattlesnakes. So like two big charismatic snakes, yeah, uh, and then I transition usually into spotted turtle surveys um, to varying degrees uh, in the spring, um, and then I have other projects involving you know, snake fungal disease sampling, or um, maybe I'm doing sandhill drift fencing in the fall. I do you know southern hognose snake or fine snake surveys. Oh wow! Um, yeah, just kind of kind of cycle through everything, and uh, alligator snappers are kind of mixed there in the middle whenever we get a chance usually. So Okay. Well, um, before we get to the ASTs, as it were, I'm glad to hear you've had a, a great experience with Orian. I, I think highly of that organization. Uh, I, I support them financially, although, I, hey, guys, the check's in the mail. I, <laughs> I haven't <laughs> sent my check in for this year yet, but I will soon. Uh, but I support them, and I hope a lot of my uh, listeners support the them as uh, Oriana as well, because uh, you all do great conservation work. You all do great work in not not only conserving these uh, animals like indigos and diamondbacks and uh, alligator snapping turtles and so on and so forth, but uh, you know you, you put a lot of work towards gaining knowledge about the you know the need the ecological needs of the animals so that you can better conserve them. So important work, I think. Yeah, yeah, I, I I'm pretty proud of the work we've done since I've been here. And um, yeah, it's exactly the kind of stuff that I like to see get done. Um, research that actually tangibly benefits the species that we're, we're looking at. Heck yeah. I mean, you guys are like 
rolling down the window and throwing <laughs> baby indigos out the door when you're driving around. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> you guys got to be careful, or you're going to end up in you know those urban legends, you know, about the the helicopters <laughs> dropping oh, yeah. snakes. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we we do absolutely get people asking if we can put indigos on their property and you know, stuff oh, wow. like that. They're like, I got rattlesnakes. I'd love to have indigos in my yard. It's like that's. It's not how it works, but yeah, but we appreciate your, your interest. <laughs> yeah. Your enthusiasm for indigo snakes, but yeah, sorry. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, let's get, let's, uh, I brought you on because I want to hear more about these alligator snappers, um, which I have yet to see, um, <laughs> man. Uh, it's, it's one of those charismatic animals. And most of the people that listen to the show, if they haven't seen one, they're very interested in seeing one that, you know, everybody wants to see, that kind of species, uh, the charismatic mesofauna, perhaps. Uh, so let's talk about your work with with the alligator snappers. Yeah. And uh, where, where specifically does the work take place and that kind of thing? Yeah. So all my work um, that's been done since 2016 to present has uh, occurred in Georgia. So okay. the, uh, the alligator snapper up until 2014, I think, was considered one species. And then uh, it got split into three, the alligator snapper out west, the Apalachicola alligator snapper, and the Sewanee alligator snapper. And the uh, Apalachicola has since been sunk and kind of lumped back into uh, Tamincai, which is the one to the west. Right. So um, all my work has focused on Sewaneeensis, the Sewanee okay. alligator snapping turtle. And we should point out, too, that, I mean... They, they, if you take a picture of a Suwaniensis and a picture of a Taminki, put them side by side, it looks pretty much the same, but there's some definite morphological differences as well as genetic differences, right? Yeah, there's, there's some, uh, the most obvious is the, the notch on the back of the carapace, like right above the tail. Um, oh. it's a little wider and more kind of crescent moon shaped. Okay. Opposed to a Taminki. I think there's uh, some skull osteology differences with the skull. Yeah, there's right? some uh, skull morphology. Um, although, you know, I actually haven't seen Taminkai, which oh, is, okay, yeah, that's kind of uh, that, that needs to be remedied. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know if I could, you know, distinguish the differences that easily on the on the skulls. Okay. But uh, it's easy because they don't overlap in the wild naturally. Right. So, okay. Um, you know, they're they're limited by drainages. And uh, the Sewanee uh, is limited to the greater Sewanee drainage. So that is where I've been working. And it is kind of funny how it came about. It was never, at least it wasn't on my radar. I don't think it was really on anyone's radar until 2016. And uh, there was a private property uh, down here that uh, was of significant conservation. There, There were some pretty rare species of imperiled herp species on that property, some rare birds, some rare plants. And so Orianne and DNR, we had access to this property and uh, for various surveys and prescribed fire work. And I think it was a DNR employee saw a turtle nesting, uh, we presume nesting on the edge of a sand hill and, uh, you know, took a picture and threw it on the internet, threw it on social media. It's a common snapping turtle and it, the right eyes fell upon it and it was like, Whoa, hold up. That's, Uh-oh. that's an alligator snapper. That, that's clearly a, a nesting <laughs> female. 
And so yeah. it was a species that I guess oh, no one had just no one had thought about. And uh, so it was less than two weeks later, Dirk and I were out there throwing traps in the water there at that property. And that's where we first started seeing them. And I think it was at that point where we kind of realized, you know, looking into the, the records and the literature that there was so little known about Sawaniensis. Um, Cause we do have Taminkai in Southwest Georgia and uh, John Jensen and some uh, other people have worked with them a little bit more uh, in the past. And so when it was all one species, I think it was just kind of considered, you know, less abundant in the East, um, all one species. Um, but since the split, I think we only had about 20 records for the entire state prior to 2016. Wow. Like verified museum specimens or photo vouchers. Like there was only about 20 total. Well, I think the state also has to, you know, all of a sudden the state is um, of Georgia and I guess Florida are facing the the idea that you have a new species, a separate species that you're going to have to have a, Action plans for, con- you know, conservation plans, protection plans, that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, I'm sure there was some interest in, in that from a just a statewide conservation uh, angle. Yeah, and I, I hadn't heard anything about that until, you know, a couple of years later is when we actually started getting a little bit of money for this work. But back in 2016, 2017, um, this was just Dirk and I on weekends. Like we had a spare uh. time. Dirk took some vacation days. We went. You know, stayed in a hotel and, you know, got muddy for a week, you know, threw traps in the water and we smelled like sardines at the end of the week, but we were happy. <laughs> yeah. So it was, um, I just want to, I want to point something out here before we move on, because this is, this really got to me here is you took vacation and went herping. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't even that far, like just a couple. You guys are, you guys are like feral herpetologists, you know, it's like, <laughs> what are we going to do with our time up? We're going to do some more herping. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I, I uh, really appreciate that, man. I'm like, yeah, I'm giving you like the chef's kiss here. This is super yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was honestly, it's some of the most fun I've ever had in the field. You know, I, I, I typically consider myself a little bit more of a snake guy. Like I'm just, uh-huh. that was my introduction to herpetology working with rattlesnakes and you know, especially pit vipers, like something about them. They're the ultimate underdog in the public's eye. And I just find them so fascinating. So, you know, I always gravitated towards snakes, but man, these turtles, like there's something about them that just <laughs> really, you know, they're, they've got a special place in my heart. So. Plus you're kind of, you're kind of blazing new trails here, right? You, you, there's a big unknown and you guys are like dipping your toe into it. So Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, I don't think Dirk had done a whole lot of this at that point. Um, but, you know, we kind of, it was kind of a learning curve together, uh, trying to figure out how to best um, document these turtles. And so, you know, from there on, you know, like I said, we worked weekends, just whenever we could. We, we, we go work on a different project and throw some traps in the water on the way out to a site. And then stay the night and check them in the morning. Yeah. Uh, just whenever we could, we get traps in the water. Um, and over the you know last couple of years, we've gotten 10 county records and these 20, 20 or so records for the state is now upwards of about 100 or so. Very good. So, yeah, we've we've made a lot of progress. We've marked a lot of turtles. We've taken a lot of genetics. Um, now we're hoping to get some recaptures to you know look at growth and look at movement and you know, things like that, just whenever we can get the chance. Because only 
only for two years did we actually have funding to do this. The rest of it is just kind of, it's, we have the passion for it and we want to see it done. So, Herb love. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So tell me a little bit about the, uh, obviously you've got some pretty big traps, but what size <laughs> turtles, what, give me some min and minimum and maximum sizes that you're pulling in. Yeah. So, I mean, I've gotten turtles that are, you know, maybe, you know, 10 inches long, eight, 10 inches long shell length, uh, you know, straight line okay. carapace length. Those are kind of on the small end. And then on the big end, uh, upwards of like 105, 108 pounds. Oh, yeah. So actually, I'm, I'm really jealous. Uh, Dirk got that one without me. And so I actually haven't broken the 100 pound mark. Um, I've gotten them up at around oh. 80, 84 pounds. I've gotten a couple in there. Uh, so, yeah, I'm a little I'm a little jealous of that. Um, but, yeah, I guess average is probably 40, 50 pounds. Okay. And you can get three, four turtles on a trap. Uh, my brain, oh gosh, oh my gosh, <laughs> my my brain went on this little flight of fancy while well, I, I tried to come up with a, how one picks up an 85-pound alligator snapper. Um, <laughs> so I, I imagine you're, you do the behind, the shell behind the head thing, you have to pick them up that way, or yeah, what's the you, safe way to do that? Yeah, so actually, you know, I, I find them a lot easier outside of just their their size, um, they're heavy. Um, but I find them a lot easier to manipulate than say a common snapper or a Florida soft shell. Uh, like we get Florida soft shells and traps all the time and they're like 20, 30 pounds of energy and fury. They're, they're trying to bite. They're hard to hold on to. They're fast. Um, I, I think they're incredible turtles. I absolutely love them, but they can be a bit of a, a trick to pull out of traps. If you got, you know, a couple of them in there. Hmm. Okay. Um, but yeah, you just, you know, one hand on the, the carapace right above the head. Uh, they can't lift their head, can't turn around to reach you there. And then just one on the, the back of the carapace, like right in that, that notch above the tail. And okay. uh, the real big ones, we don't even really lift them off the ground. We just kind of pivot them on the back of their shell to, to sh- gotcha. shuffle them around on the bank. So are you working out of a boat or are you just working off the bank? It depends. Uh, so a lot of the rivers that we work are really dynamic seasonally. So, you know, one uh-huh. year I was able to drive an outboard motor boat with traps up and down the river. The next year uh, I was portaging a canoe with traps because I just it was sandbars and you'd have these just deep pockets and you'd have to go, you know, a couple hundred yards before you could actually get in the canoe and paddle it again. I see. Is it is is the current strong in these rivers or is it a moderate current? Uh, I'm just curious. In places, it's it's not too bad. In most places, um, that also depends with you know the water level. Um, but we also trap in a lot of these kind of oxbow forested river swamps, kind of off the edge of the main channel, oh, uh, kind of okay. these back sloughs, and so there's very little current in there. Well, that so, was going to be my next question: is whether they require current. They're, so they're fine back in the oxbows when there's not much water movement at all. They're, they still do just fine back there. Yeah, yeah, they seem to do pretty good as long as it's, you know, somewhat seasonally connected or, you know, uh, associated associated with a, a riverine system. Okay. Uh, they seem to do okay. I kind of bring this up because, you know, one of the things I, you know, read coming up, and I think probably in Philip Smith's Reptiles of Illinois or something like that, you know, you read the stories of, Alligator snappers turning up in Iowa, Muscatine, Iowa. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, the contention is 
these things in river systems, they just sort of walk into the current and they may spend their entire life walking upstream. Now, I don't know how much credence there is to that story, but it sounds pretty cool to me. This this turtle just walks for a hundred years and next thing you know, it's in Iowa. Uh, but whether or not that's true or not, but so that made me ask whether, you know, you find these things in, in current or they, they do, but they seem to do fine in still water. So maybe yeah. that's just a, a story. Yeah. And a lot, a lot of the ones we do get in the main channel of the rivers um, is you get these bends and kind of the outside of these bends gets kind of eroded away and you get this kind of just, sheer drop on the bank these real steep banks or even undercut banks and uh the the alligator snappers really like those sort of banks um any sort of woody structure in the main main channel they like hanging out there okay so any any tree fall any snag yeah Yeah, that's what we're we're looking for you know we see that and we see you know the right type of microhabitat or what we think is the right microhabitat under the water uh we'll set traps uh, just a little upstream, so like the, our bait scent can travel down to hopefully where the turtles are hiding. Okay, that it reminds me of something else too, because it's it can be dangerous to be in rivers with snags and tr- you know trees and underwater and things like that. It'd be very dangerous. Yeah. So you guys let the traps do the work for you. Yeah, yeah, uh, and if there is in most places at least. Uh, in Suwannee Range in Georgia, you cannot snorkel. You cannot visually encounter these turtles in most places. They're, you know, during okay. s- very specific water levels uh, in certain places, you might be able to see them, but a lot of the water is deep, like dark tea colored or Folgers coffee, even really dark tannic oh. water. And so you can't see, and uh, you, know, you get in the water, it's actually kind of spooky sometimes. You know, like you step off the bank and you're immediately over your head and you're like bumping into sticks like there, you feel branches that you're kicking underwater and uh, you got to set a trap and not get it tangled and make sure it's, you know, set just right. So the funnel stays open. And it's quite an ordeal. Wow. So you don't have you don't have part of the trap sticking out of the water. All we, the time. we do. Or so, do yeah, we okay. always anchor the back of the trap to a like a tree or, you know, some very sturdy root structure on the bank. And we actually tie it pretty close to the, it's a, it's a hoop trap. So it's four big four foot rings. And at the end of the, the last ring is a big funnel. And so. Okay. We have to, so I'm picturing sort of like the, the cornucopia, the horn of plenty type thing that it kind of curves up the back as it gets smaller and the turtle could get air at the back of the trap. So it, the, the rings stay are all four feet in diameter. All the, so it's, it's a cylinder. Okay. And then the very back it's is a, a cone. Um, okay. But yeah. And then there's a funnel at the mouth and you got to keep it taut. You need to keep it tied really tight to a tree. And then we actually take like railroad plates or bricks and weight um, on like a 20 foot lead. And we weight the front end of the trap to keep it kind of expanded out in holding shape. Okay. Because if it's not taut, it'll actually collapse in on itself. And uh, we don't okay. want, you know, we don't want any of that to happen. We won't catch turtles. And then if it's not tied tight enough and, you know, securely enough on the bank, um, an animal could work out some slack and potentially drown itself. So oh, we, yeah. we definitely want okay. to keep it very much secured to the bank. So there's an art and science to this. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, you don't just like toss the trap off the end of the boat. Like, you got to find very specific places to tie the traps <laughs> off and 
yeah, it can be a little bit of a challenge sometimes, but uh, always worth it. Okay. And ladies and gentlemen, this is what we call fun. This is fun. This is the most fun I think <laughs> I've ever had. <laughs> All right. Um, Do you catch other things? I, I assume you catch regular snappers once in a while and other turtles and fish and things. Yeah, every once in a while, a, a common snapper uh, turns up in a trap. But uh, I think the most common turtle bycatch is uh, Florida softshells. Um, they're quite uh, abundant. Uh, we get a lot of uh, yellow belly sliders as well. Um, loggerhead musk turtles, if we get real big ones that, can, that can't fit through the mesh on the, on the trap. We'll get, you know, large male loggerhead uh, turtles. I love those things. They're cool. Yeah. And then uh, get all sorts of fish, bass, catfish, bowfin, gar, um, and then the occasional alligator. So Ooh. I've had uh, anywhere from three-footer to eight-footer in a trap. And multiple occasions I've had like six-foot alligators in with a, a big 50-pound alligator snapper. And then you throw a couple of soft-shell turtles in there for seasoning and it's it's a good time what what do you do then you call in a chopper or what yeah you know it's a it's a process you gotta you know try to keep the animals from biting each other because you know they're freaked out in a trap and so you try to separate them on separate ends and usually if the alligator's tangled in the trap at all you move the the turtle to the other move the turtle away and then uh you just it's it's definitely a two-man job or three-person job, if you're lucky. Um, yeah. And then first priority is to secure the alligator, um, secure the jaws, get it out of the trap, whether you have to cut it out or you can easily just pull it out of the funnel. A lot of times you actually have to cut the trap to get the gators out. Oh, boy. Um, but, yeah, you get that out, released, and then you can, you know, start working with the turtles, um, getting them out. Okay. Get rid of the the serious jaws of death first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fortunately, I haven't had too much trouble with alligators. Um, most of the time, I can have been able to get them out quite easily, uh, thankfully, because it could be a real nightmare. Yeah, well, I'm just sitting here thinking, well, you know, a three footer, I would I would make an attempt, but a six footer, um, no. Uh, <laughs> No, I would I would nope right out of there. I think that's that's a lot of gator. Yeah, and you you definitely see it when you're you know, coming up to the trap. If you got a gator, it, there's a lot of commotion going on. There's splashing. Okay. You can see it, and you're just like, okay, mentally prepare yourself as you approach the trap. Um, and it, it's neat. You come up to any of these traps. Usually, they're the water's dark enough you can't see in them, but you look at the trap and you'll see it bounce. Yeah. Oh, something's walking around in there. Something big is walking around. Okay. In there. And then you lift and it's not until you get a couple inches from the surface till you start to make out the shape of these just prehistoric looking turtles. <laughs> and then, man, it's a, wow. it's an adrenaline rush. It's, it's really, really exciting. That sounds cool. It sounds really cool. <clears throat> so you've, you've added all of this data about alligators, about Sawani's alligator snapping turtles. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you, are there things that surprised you and then Dirk about, you know, what we, you were finding or abundance or just anything in general about them? Yeah. So, um, yeah, there, there are a few things. Uh, first I want to note that, you know, um, alligator snappers across the range have been historically harvested for food. Um, yeah, you know, they've been eaten, um, some places a lot more than others, but it was thought 
um, I think between the 1930s and the 1970s, there were a couple rivers uh, in Suwannansis Range that were heavily trapped or heavily harvested from. And we have just anecdotal records of that or evidence of that. Um, and a few, few rivers were considered trapped out. Like we talked to someone who used to actually trap and, you know, one of these rivers considered just trapped out. Mm -hmm. People weren't catching turtles in it anymore. Um, I see. Yeah. So, you know, we have, he went into it thinking, you know, well, we don't even really know like there's turtles existing in these, in these rivers. Um, you know, fortunately in these rivers, um, that had harvest in a couple of them, uh, we did in fact encounter alligator snappers. We did catch them in those systems. So there are at least some relic turtles uh, in those okay. waterways, which is, you know, that's encouraging. That, re that reminds me, um, you know, in Illinois, Southern Illinois, they have this project where they're reintroducing alligator snappers to Minky to uh, some waterways down in, in the Southern part of the state. And uh, as part of them, because they, more or less thought that they were gone, but as part mm -hmm. of the reintroduction and, and, and further, you know, uh, a follow up with the turtles, see how they're doing. They found, I think perhaps one or more that are, that were still there that had been there the whole time. Yeah. So they were hanging on a little bit. So yeah, obviously yeah. it's an animal that's not easily detected. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, they're very cryptic for being such a large beast. Like in the, they're, they're not easy to find unless you're, you know, going about it a certain way. Well, these people that would harvest them for food, would they take the real big ones, you know, the 80, 90 pounders? Would they take yeah. those too? Yeah. yeah. As far as I know, um, there's some old photographs uh, along the Sewanee, I think near, near Okefenokee, um, where there's a, a guy out by his house, his front, his front yard, and basically his walkway leading up to his porch is lined with big alligator snapper shells. Oh and boy. It's just like a couple dozen. And so that was presumably, he lived on the river, presumably all trapped, like right there. And these were all big, mature adult turtles. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think they mostly took the big ones just because they could get more meat. And are, are they protected now in the state? Yeah, so throughout their range, uh, they are protected. There's no harvest allowed whatsoever. Um, they're considered threatened by the state of Georgia and Florida. And uh, currently they are, you know, being considered for federal listing by U.S. Oh. Fish and Wildlife. They are, okay. uh, I'm not sure when that, you know, decision will be made, but I, I do think that, you know, it's probably warranted. Um, yeah. Taminkai is also, uh, has also been under consideration for that as well. Well, I, I think a big chunk of Taminkai is, is in Louisiana, which uh, is what they think still wide open for collect for collection and and uh, yeah. you can sell them and transport them out of the state. I think even. So. Yeah, I think I think that's the only state where that's still allowed, and I think it's you can take one turtle per person per day or something ridiculous like that. Oh boy. Yeah, it's that. That's really unfortunate, but. Uh, you know, thankfully, we don't have to deal with that. I've also heard stories where if you find a turtle in another state, if you can get it over to Louisiana, now it's a Louisiana turtle. Yeah. And so, you know, people use that as a workaround, too, unfortunately. But uh, yeah. um, so as far as um, the hatchlings and, and recruitment in that, what what kind of have you found any interesting data about uh, you know, how the species is doing in terms of reproduction? And uh, so. 
sustaining the populations? I think, I'm trying to remember, we, I don't think either of us, Dirk or I, have caught any hatchlings um, just because the, the nature of our traps, like the mesh is big enough to where, you know, a turtle one or, one or two years old could slip through the mesh. I see. Um, also, what's to stop a, a bigger turtle from snacking on a small one if it was actually in the traps? Uh, because yeah. alligator snappers are, you know, pretty big turtle predators. Um, they do eat fish. They eat invertebrates like crayfish and a lot of mollusks and snails. Um, but they will eat things like sternopterus and small sliders and things like that. They will, you know, absolutely eat other turtles. Um, anything they can get that big maw exactly open yep. for. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we haven't caught any, you know, real tiny ones, but like I was saying, you have caught turtles that were probably eight inches long carapace length. And by that time okay. they're, they're pretty, they're pretty robust. They're pretty well armored. You know, uh, I think they're, number of predators is actually quite small once they hit that size. Um, yeah, and like you say, at that size, they're kind of um, bouncy, right? They they move yeah, quick. And, yeah, they're a little, they're a little quicker. Uh, they don't have to haul all that weight around. Um, I uh, I think I I told this story on a podcast, which is yet to air, but my daughter Molly has a, a little snapping turtle that lives on a small pond in her property, and I decided one day to, to check him out. His name's Frank, and uh, he's probably a seven or eight pound snapper and a uh, regular, regular snapper. And, uh, so I went into, took off my shoes and went in the pond and got Frank out to see what he looked like and had my grandkids along and got Frank out on the bank and the kid, you know, my grandkids are all like, what's going on? What's grandpa doing now? So anyway, I got him out and, and so we're just talking about him, you know, he's, he's fine. He won't hurt anything. Just, you know, give him some space and. I decided to take a picture of him, so I, he was kind of turned the wrong way, so I reached around back to try to turn him by the tail a little bit so I could take a picture of it. And that's, I'm not making this up, Ben. That snapper left the ground and grabbed my hand. <laughs> it got air, grabbed my hand, and gave me a horrendous chomp. Mm-hmm. Uh, broke the skin, and, I, of course, I went, wow, you know, and the turtle. <laughs> Frank went flying a little ways, and, and uh, my grandkids were traumatized. I think, you know, probably going to have to have some therapy somewhere <laughs> down the road, but n- never trusting grandpa in the woods again. But uh, I have never in my life had a snapper leave the ground like that. But it was just, it was strong enough, but light enough where it could actually do that thing. And and when you're talking about these small alligator snappers, I'm kind of thinking the same thing. They're very, they're very strong, but they're light enough where they can move quickly and move around and and uh, it's much different from an 85-pounder, isn't it? Yeah, so I, I've never had a, a Macrochiles, like, leave the ground or, you know, be quite as quick as, say, a common snapper. Um, but they are a little more um, prone to, you know, turn and face you and, you know, do some lunges. Okay. Um, but uh, they're still not not quite on the level as the other turtles. They're still pretty easy to, you know, kind of manipulate and keep your hands I safe. See. Thankfully. Uh, I have seen some... Uh, <laughs> There's a clinical report of a, uh, I guess a teenager that caught a alligator snapper on a hook and line, and in the process of trying to get his line back, suffered a bite, and uh, it was a surgical 
amputation of the index finger. I saw like the x-rays mm. are published and it's just a clean cut. And this was, you know, I think about a 60, 70 pound turtle. And it Ooh. was just, it was surgical. It was pretty wild. Wow. It's a sobering reminder whenever I'm out there. You just think back about that and like, don't become that person. Yeah. Well, there's, there, you know, there's a common trope about they can snap a broom handle into, you know, hear that all the time. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> you know, uh, you know, don't sweep around snapping turtles. You'll be fine. But <laughs> a, a broom handle is much more tough than your finger in terms of uh, <laughs> a yeah. pair of cutting jaws. <laughs> so, yeah, exactly. Uh, so I, I guess I'm not surprised, but at the same time, it's, it's like, that's kind of a horrific tale, isn't it? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate, you know, and don't wish that on anyone, but it's a, no. a good demonstration of just the power that these animals have. And, you know, you always need to respect them. You know, I, I love interacting with these turtles, love seeing them in the wild, but there needs to be a huge dose of respect for what they can yeah. do. Yeah. And that, that's probably seeing that x-ray is probably a, a nice little shot of uh, reality for you too. It's like, yep. Yeah. Yep, yeah. This is why, <laughs> this is why yeah. we, ha- we treat them like, you know, kid gloves. <laughs> the same thing with venomous snakes. Like, you know, I work with diamondbacks a good bit and that's a, that's a formidable animal like that. There's a presence yep. with the Eastern diamondback that I have yet to experience with any other rattlesnake. And it, it every once in a while, I'll just kind of, you know, see a, a snake bite account, you know, I'll look at it and read through it, look at the pictures and I'm like, okay, that's, that's what I don't want to have happen. It's just a, a healthy reminder of what I'm dealing with sometimes on a daily basis. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good um, dose of reality. Yeah, don't want to get complacent. No, no. Now, we talked about things that this alligator snappers eat, and you talk about what I would consider normal things that they would eat. But don't they also eat weird things like acorns and yeah, some vegetable matter that, uh, you know, can you yeah. speak a little bit about that? Yeah, as far as I am aware, you know, acorns is a big one, um, and um, we have a it's called Nogichi lime. I think it's from one of the uh, the species of Tupelo that we have down here. And okay. the fruits drop off into the water. I'm pretty sure those have been found in gut contents of turtles. Um, so, yeah, they're not strictly carnivorous. They are eating other things as well. Um, and, of course, they do have that little lingual lure, that little fleshy bit on their tongue that they you know wiggle like yeah. a worm to lure in fish. And that is thought to be mostly done by younger turtles. And as okay. turtles age, they get more size to them that uh, they they seem to lure a little less frequently. Oh, and then, uh, okay. And th- I think once they get big, you know, they're going to scavenge whatever they can get a hold of. Um, but clams, like mussels, freshwater mussels, snails, like those are a huge part of their diet, and at least in some regions. Wow. Which... You know, another reason to have the big, powerful jaws and strong beak and the whole bit, right? To, you want to crunch the muscle. It, it's yeah. Take, um, muscle as in mollusk. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, you, it, uh, you need that big that big bite set to, to do that. Exactly, yeah. And uh, if you actually look at the lower jaw of uh, an alligator snapper, like the you, you, you think of the blade, the real sharp part, the pointed beak. But the lower jaw actually has... Uh, a kind of a wide bony plate running, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a smashing surface uh, oh, in there. So okay. it's actually used kind of like a nutcracker kind of along the inside of that jaw. And so you can see okay. how it'd be really effective against things like clams and snails. 
Wow. Okay. It just smashes it like a hammer. It just, just crunches it up. Yeah. <laughs> Fabulous. Acorns and all that. And of course, you know, one of the things that uh, also gets kicked around are these apocryphal stories of things embedded in the <laughs> shells of, of snapping turtles, like uh, musket balls and tomahawks yeah. <laughs> and arrowheads. And, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, and uh, Civil War musket balls. That's the one I always heard, you know. Yep. I heard, uh, I've heard that so many times. <laughs> and I don't know if any of that's true, but it, it makes her a great story. You know, you haul yeah, up I a mean, hundred pound snapper and it's got an arrowhead in its back. Yeah. Wow. I mean, okay. The series of events that would have had to have happened for that to occur. Uh, it's, it seems improbable, but, you know, who knows? Uh, I do see alligator snappers with, uh, you know, injuries to their shells. Um and, you know, I think some of that could be uh, other other turtles. Um, we actually recaptured a, a younger turtle. It was probably about 20 pounds, 25 pounds. The first time we caught him, he had all his limbs. Uh, we caught him a year or two later. He only had three limbs. Uh-oh. And so the only thing that would have taken one of those legs would have been another alligator snapper or an alligator. Okay. And, uh, so we think that we suspected from the look of that injury that it was probably uh, another another turtle. Um, but I have found turtles that have pretty clear alligator teeth marks in the carapace. Okay. Like they have mm-hmm. these puncture, they're not true punctures, but you can see where like uh, the individual alligator teeth have left marks in okay. the carapace. Little indents. Yeah, little yeah, little bit of damage that you know didn't make it anywhere deep enough to have an effect, but I think they definitely try. It's a rough <laughs> world out there. Yeah, and not—I mean, not only do you have all these other things trying to eat you, but you can't see anything either. I mean, yeah, yeah, I, those I, things are in the dark, right? It's amazing. Yes, yeah, it's, it's pitch black. I mean, I'm, I'm sure they might have maybe a little better sight than than we do underwater, but uh, I think a lot of it's olfactory. It just going off a of scent and maybe sensing movement. They've got all these little tubercles on their necks. Um, I think they probably detect uh, changes in water pressure and movement and things like that. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. And there's so many other animals that have those sensory apparatus, especially in, in murky water, you know? Yeah. So that makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, but it must be, I'm trying to think about the, you know, the snapping turtle that comes up to lay eggs and, up until the light of day, it must be quite a uh, an experience for that for that turtle to have all this sunlight, you know, beating, yeah. you know, coming into the brain, and, uh, and maybe it's disorienting. I don't know, but I'm trying trying to think like a snapper, behave, uh, think of what a snapping turtle would be like, you know. Yeah, and um, you know, all of a sudden gravity is working a little harder against you. You got to haul yeah. your weight up that bank uh, to you know, yeah. get out of the high water mark in order to nest. Um, yeah, it's it's very foreign to them. It's I mean, it's it's not what they're built for. You know, they're definitely no. built for an aquatic environment. So, is there a, a good idea of of clutch size for these things? What's what's a typical clutch size? Do you know? I do not know, and I don't know if anyone knows for Swaniensis. Um, okay, I think I don't think any reproduction work has been done. Uh, for the species, uh, there may be some in Florida. Uh, they've been studied a little more down there, okay. um, but I'm not aware of it at this at this point. And one has to be in the right place at the right time to see, you know, when these things are hauling up to to lay their eggs, and exactly that, that may vary throughout the region and 
uh, as to when that happens. So, yeah. So you can't sit by the riverbank <laughs> forever. <laughs> forever, all year long. <laughs> as, as nice as that sounds, you can't do it every day. So, yeah. Okay. But, and what about the, the longevity of these things? I mean, you always hear again, like the mus- musket bald story and all that, but you hear the stories of turtles that are a couple hundred years old. I guess that's possible. What do you think? Yeah, I, once again, I'm I'm not a hundred percent sure, but it would not shock me to you know have turtles exceeding eighty years, um, you know, to reach these sizes of you know one hundred and twenty, uh, potentially one hundred and fifty in some cases. I don't know how common that would be with Swaniensis, but you know, even a hundred pound turtle. Like it's got to be a fairly old turtle, and uh, you just think about turtle life history. It's very slow. It's prolonged, and that makes them very vulnerable to you know harvest and collection and stuff. Um, right. So it's just and really- I, I guess too, you know, a tur- hundred pound turtle is still a a reproducing animal. They yeah. don't they don't have reproductive what do you call it reproductive senescence or whatever. Like you know, humans after a while you you, you stop reproducing, but yeah. turtles just keep. They just keep pumping out the eggs. Right? Yeah, and I think actually with age, a lot of turtles actually become more, you know, produce more eggs, become more ah, um, okay. productive. They're, they're definitely very long-lived turtles, and, you know, that's something that I don't think anyone's really figured out yet, just how long they can actually live. Well, we'll have to come have you come back on the show when you figure this out. You yeah, yeah. More that's, about I'll it. come back when I'm 80. <laughs> see? <laughs> Oh man, if I'm still doing this show when you're 80. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, let's not speculate about that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, what do you you have goals coming up for these things? Uh, you and Dirk and an Orien in particular. What what's the plan going forward with these things? Well, as of right now, uh, we're still kind of just opportunistically trapping whenever we can. Dirk's Dirk's got a contract right now, but Orion doesn't. So Dirk's kind of doing his own consulting company um, these days okay. and uh, working on various things. But he does have a small contract surveying. I can't remember. I think it's um, the Sewanee main stem, which comes out of the Okefenokee. So that's actually a pretty interesting area. It's one place where we were unable to catch alligator snappers in the main river, the, the river they're named after. Okay. Um, and there could be several factors playing into that. Um, the Okefenokee is, you know, very acidic. Um, it uh-huh. lacks native muscle and snail diversity. Uh, so there could be a, you know, a, maybe food's not quite as abundant. Um, the habitat has changed in that swamp. You know, the, the Sewanee River, there's a, a dam actually on the west side of the Okefenokee. And that may have altered you know fish movement may have altered water depth and you know who knows what else um right but also we suspect that that stretch of river was heavily harvested as well okay um so that's that's one place where you know we suspect there might be a couple animals um there's definitely turtles in that river as you get into florida but in the georgia side we were unable to find them in the main stem however we have found them in tributaries that lead directly into the Suwannee. So I don't know if they're relic populations. I don't know if uh, it's just habitat is more favorable in those spots, or maybe it's easier to trap turtles there because the Suwannee, you know, it it can be pretty vast, uh, pretty big river. 
um, sometimes lacking good places to set traps. So maybe we're just not putting our traps in the right places. So it's, it's one of those mysteries going forward to you know, really try to tease out what the turtle population looks like in that part of the range. I suppose they're, they're down in the lower Suwannee in Florida, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. So as you get down there, the water, the water changes. Um, it's very acidic. It's very, um, it's very dark water, black water coming out of the Okefenokee. And as you get into Florida, it starts to be more spring fed. And so it kind of clears that up, um, less acidic, gets a little more productive. And I think you have more prey availability. So they, they do have them down there. Um, but one of the most exciting things that we've, turned up in the last couple of years has actually been in Okefenokee itself. There was one record in Okefenokee proper in the swamp. Uh, someone found a skull out there on like a oh. little bit of little bit of land out in the middle of the Okefenokee back in like 1913, something way, way back. And that was the only evidence of them being in there, verified evidence. And then in the thirties, it was reported that people would catch them on hook and line in places in the swamp. But back in 2019, we had photographic proof on the east side of the Okefenokee, so opposite of the the headwaters of the Sewanee. Uh, Someone caught one on hook and line, got photographs of it, and then saw it later just out foraging along the bank. And then in 2021, uh, we got an animal up on the north end of the Okefenokee. So uh, out there in the swamp, they have... uh, to maintain some of the canals, the the boat trails, you know, some of the places around the visitor centers, like they use these boat machinery to control vegetation. They kind of scoop or chop up the veg or, you know. Yeah. I've seen those things in action. Yeah. 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 So one of those pieces of equipment while clearing a stretch of, you know, canal or trail or something uh, scooped up a turtle in vegetation and they had foresight to, you know, bring it to land, hold on to it, contact us. Oh, so cool. we actually got hands on an animal um, on the north end of Okefenokee. We got genetics. We marked it. Pretty good sized male, probably about 50 pounds. Yeah. So, so there it's, it's looking more and more like there are turtles in that swamp. You know, how many, we don't know. How are we going to survey it? We don't know <laughs> because <laughs> uh, you know, the concentration of alligators in there, I think we would just be throwing away traps. Like I think they would just wreck our oh, traps boy. and we'd just be untangling alligators for weeks on end. You know, I, I went through Okefenokee back in this, this, this is an old guy telling an old guy story. <laughs> I, I went through Okefenokee back in uh, March of 1978. I was with a, I was taking a class at college called Swamp Ecology. And uh, we did an 11-day trip through Okefenokee. And my, one of my jobs, one of my projects was to count alligators. <laughs> and uh, it's March, so, <clears throat> you know, it wasn't uh, hot weather uh, at all. But uh, I did count 159 alligators uh, on our 11 days in there, I thought. And so yeah. uh, I'm sure if, <laughs> I'm sure there's still <laughs> quite a few alligators in that place. Yeah, so, there, there uh, are. It's amazing. Yeah. And then also throughout the swamp, like you don't have like a ton of trees right along the waterways. So it would be hard to actually even anchor a trap. Um, oh, yeah. So like yeah. It, you'd, you'd have trouble even setting traps. You know, forget the alligators 
you know, it'd just be hard to set traps that you could actually secure. Right. That you could um, anchor and hold open and so on and so forth. Yeah, okay. exactly. And, and there's not as much current in there in a lot of places. So, you know, would you, the, the scent of your bait travel good and, you know, oh. would the turtle actually be able to find the opening of the trap. Um, so okay. yeah, it's just a lot of compounding variables that make it really difficult to understand the turtles there. But, uh, we're hopefully going to make some more progress on that. Good. Have you ever found them outside of it, you know, without using a trap? Have you ever just seen one, you know, foraging or, or anything like that? Or has it all been trap based? So uh, I've, I've snorkeled for Taminkai a couple times and got skunked. Uh, yeah. I did see some other really cool. I saw barbers, map turtles and all sorts oh, of cool. cool stuff. Um, but there's one occasion where we've seen a turtle um, that we did not trap. Um, I have seen their tracks across sandbars and go out uh-huh. the following morning to check our traps and see where turtles have actually moved across the sandbars. And you see really wide set of turtle tracks. Couldn't be anything else. Wow. But yeah, the one time I saw a turtle, Dirk and I were setting some traps. Um, this is kind of one of those, you know, river swampy lake things, no real current. Um, the only real access to this spot was from a bridge. Um, and, uh, I think it was, it was in the fall. So deer season was in full swing, uh, late fall. And, uh, there was a deer carcass in the, uh, in the swamp and we were setting our, been setting traps and I was like, man, I smell something like something really stinks. We we're catching whiffs of it. And finally we spotted, it. it's like a bloated deer floating in this swampy lake about, you know, 30 yards out. And, you know, the water that we had been just, you know, up to our chest in. Um, Yay. And it, we, we just watch it and we see it bobbing a little bit out there. Like, Man, something big is nudging this deer, like making it bounce in the water. And all of a sudden we see this like cantaloupe sized dark head breach the water. And uh, we our, our jaws just kind of dropped. And, uh, you know, it was an alligator. The only thing it could uh-huh. be was a big alligator snapper. We didn't have a camera. We have no way to prove that that happened. Uh, that would have been a county record. <laughs> oh, wow. um, but it, it went back down. You know, we trapped for another two days, never caught a single turtle. Um, Dirk was actually, upon seeing that, uh, he was seriously contemplating, like, swimming out and grabbing that that carcass and hauling it back. <laughs> well there may there may be some anecdotal data that once they taste venison they're not interested in your in your stinky fish bait yeah they're not interested in catfish (laughs) or anything like that but yeah i could i could see him like mulling it over he was seriously considering going out to get that deer i don't know if he's going to like stick it in a trap or just get it out of the water so they would not ignore our bait but uh, thankfully, oh, he brother. didn't go get it. <laughs> uh, it's a long ride home where the guy who sticks yeah, like that. We are. Our already smelled so bad. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's funny. It took us another, gosh, at least three years before we actually caught a turtle at that site. Oh, wow. Um, but we knew they were in there, and it just ate at us. Uh, <laughs> so you kept coming back and throwing kept traps Kept coming back. Yeah, it was just a really hard place to trap. It was one of those spots where the banks just, they were undercut. you you drop a trap off the bank and sometimes it would just hang vertically in the water column. Like it wouldn't hit the land and it was just, Oh, it was tough. I, I think turtles had a hard time finding the openings in our traps. There was no current to spread okay. the, the scent very well. 
and there was a lot of sticks and stuff that you, you would get tangled in. So, yeah, it was a tough place. So when we finally got that one, man, that was that was a good day. Got your got your county record finally. I did. Yep. I think that was uh, <laughs> county record number ten. So that was holy. That cow. was exciting. That, that's got to. There's got to be some satisfaction there. It's like, yeah, we're we are mapping these things. We are yeah. really doing some some good work to help people understand where they actually are. Yeah, yeah. What drainages they're in, and yeah, it's fun. And now now that we've gotten this far, it's it's getting harder and harder to to expand the the map. Or you know, ah, it's hard to fill stuff in now. Um, now you're trying to trap outliers. Yeah, yeah, and. Uh, also, you're trying to get some recaptures now. Now we've got a lot of turtles, oh. you know, maybe we can get some recapture data and, you know, look at growth or look at movement. Um, do you uh, do you put pit tags in, in these turtles when you catch them? Yeah, so we, we do pit tag the turtles and then also um, use a, a drill to mark the uh, the marginal scoots. Okay. So we got a number system for that. Are you taking any DNA from them? Yeah, yeah, we've taken DNA on the majority of the turtles. Yeah, I should have known you guys are doing all the things, right? Yeah, we're trying to. <laughs> yeah, and then <laughs> okay. and measurements and, you know, weights and stuff like that. And, um, you know, your basic morphometrics. But, yeah, we've, we've gotten a couple of recaptures. And uh, one one younger turtle we caught uh, just, a, just over a kilometer downstream of where we caught it the year before. So we do know they are moving, you know, decent distances a kilometer isn't a short jog so for for a little squat little tetrapod it's yeah not too bad <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, th- there is movement and then we have caught turtles in the exact same spot you know over the course of okay. a couple of years so how far north do they go in georgia uh swaniensis i'm trying to think so they don't make it up to they don't make it as far north as Tamingai. Tamikai makes it almost as far north as Atlanta in the western Georgia. Okay. Uh, along the, the Flint drainage, the Apalachicola drain, like over there. Um, yeah, it, uh, Swaniensis, I don't think, makes it as far. It definitely doesn't make it as far north as I-16, if you're familiar where that is. Kind of yeah. cuts across Savannah to Macon. Yeah, they don't, yeah. they don't come close to that. Okay. I see. So, yeah, they're pretty limited in their in their range. Wow. Okay. This is exciting. This is very exciting to to hear about all this, and and it sounds like um, you know, you 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 get to work on uh, this nice patchwork of things. You know, you just kind of skip from one to the next to the next, and um, everything you you work on seems to be kind of an exciting project. Yeah. Yeah. For the most part, things stay really, really interesting and exciting. Uh, I mean, I can't really complain working with some of these real charismatic species like indigo snakes. Like I could, I could just work on indigo snakes all year long if, <laughs> if, if it was possible, I would. Um, but yeah, then you bounce the cool things like pine snakes and uh, you know, Eastern diamondbacks and spotted turtles are really, really neat. And that's another turtle that, you know, we didn't really know much of anything about. Are you learning more about their distribution in Georgia? Yeah, we've actually put a lot of effort into that over the last couple of years, um, surveying mostly uh, state-owned land, just trying to fill in the map because that's another one where we only have a handful of known populations prior to 2016. And they're tough. They are really tough to find. 
you know, as you get into the Carolinas and northward, you know, you get a spot, you know, sometimes they're in any, any old ditch along the road, you see just piles of them, but not down oh. here, <laughs> not down here. They, uh, we've, we've gone months without, you know, locating a single turtle. Um, it's, e- it's even worse in Florida. Like you can go a year or two and only find a single turtle at a new site. Well, I think sometimes people find them basking in the spring, but I don't yeah. think they're, they're out of the water much in, in the heat of the year. I don't think. No. So we can, I mean, I think, Spotted turtles can be active as early as January if we get, you know, the right little okay. warm spell. Um, but once once we get into March, I don't think there's much need for these guys to bask. And so no. you just don't see it. And there's a lot of water in some of these places. And uh, they're just so localized that you can be you know, just a couple hundred feet away and surveying there and never see one but you know go over right. and it's just a concentration of them so you know it's just you gotta land on the right spot so interesting and of course you know when i you think of spotted turtles you don't think of georgia no you know hey let's go to georgia and get some spotted turtles <laughs> hey, good know, luck um, all, of, all of mine have been you know north somewhere canada and uh, yeah actually yeah. I, got, I got a hatchling in new jersey a, a few years ago oh very cool bit, very uh, cool yeah uh, in a cranberry bog, but uh, yeah, you think of it as a northern, uh, northern marsh turtle, yeah, for the most part. But uh, you know, down where you're at, it's a swamp turtle in a yeah, way, or wet, like, wetland turtle, you know. Yeah. So, and and the diversity of things that they've used down here um, is pretty pretty cool. Um, you kind of borderline marsh habitat, cypress swamp, flooded deciduous forest, old ag ditches, like. And it, it doesn't seem consistent. Uh, we'll go to places that have, you know, the exact same looking habitat and they're not there. But you go to another spot and they're in these little creeks. And it's just like yeah. throwing us curveballs left and right. <laughs> wow. So, so you're trapping for them too, right? Yeah. Okay. And where where are you based out of, Ben? Where do you live? So I, I live in Statesboro, which is Statesboro. just uh, yeah. about 50 minutes inland from Savannah. So kind of yes, the eastern sir. side of the state. Um, but, you know, a lot of my work takes me, you know, as far as like four, four or five hours west of here. So okay. uh, fortunately, we do have the, the Orient Indigo Snake Preserve. And I yes. have housing there that I can stay at. So um, when it makes sense for my field sites, I'll, you know, I'll stay there a month or two at a time. And oh, wow. bounce back and forth. Anything yeah. to cut down on the driving. Yeah, really. That's a, that's a lot of driving. Um, fortunately, yeah, I've been to that, to that place you're talking about, the, that's a, n- a nice place for people to, to, to stay and do their work out of. So yeah, yeah it's guys we're are fortunate, fortunate to have that. Yeah. yeah. It's a nice facility. <laughs> yeah. So uh, let me ask, let me ask you, let me take this in a slightly different direction. And yeah, you came to Peru with us a few years ago mm-hmm. and had a, a pretty good time, I think. Oh yeah. Uh, probably had a hard <laughs> time wiping the grin off your face, but, uh, I mean, are, are you interested in visiting uh, other places uh, like, you know, I don't know, the desert or something else besides uh, the river swamp? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, actually, um, this is where my Minnesota heritage comes from or comes into play. Uh, I love winter. I love cold weather. So down here in the oh. muggy southeast, it is actually not my cup of tea. Uh, <laughs> so okay. that's another reason why I like alligator snapper work is I can actually get in the water and cool off and, you know, paddle around. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I really enjoy 
the desert Southwest. I've worked a little bit out in Southern Nevada on desert tortoises before I came here. Um, and I've, you know, I've gone, I've done a couple trips to, you know, um, New Mexico, Southern Arizona. Um, yeah, I love it down there. Done really good. Seen some really cool stuff. And my brother now lives in Washington state. So I've done a little bit of Northwest herping in the ah. last couple of years. Um, Oregon, yeah. Washington, Idaho. So, so many cool salamanders. Fantastic salamanders up there. Yeah. Can't wait to go back up that way. Hmm. Yeah. So that's, that's what I've been doing recently, uh, in the States. Um, and I've, uh, I went to Ecuador last year with Ross Ooh. Maynard went down. Oh, to, Ross. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I went down to Rio Mandiriaku and, you know, spent two weeks there. Oh, God, that was a cool place. That was a lot of fun. Yeah. I've had, you know, I did talk to Ross on the show about, about that. And yeah, it, it sounds like a fascinating place. Yeah. He, uh, he didn't oversell it. It was, it was good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> it was, it's pretty tough down there too, though. Yeah. It's We're pretty, not talking about flat land. No, it's, you're going up a, up a hillside that's, and I went in the dry season, so it wasn't raining nearly what they normally have. And so that was still slick going. And, uh, you know, spent yeah. about a, a week at the, the main uh, low elevation camp. And then we spent about four or five days up on the, the ridgeline. So we made a big trek up yeah. the ridgeline in the cloud forest. And man, it's cool. Definitely billy goat type uh, habitat <laughs> up there. But yep. uh, yeah. Do uh, what, uh, what, what cool stuff did you come away with that really struck you? So yeah, probably my favorite was the, the Mendo glass frog. Oh. Yeah, Nymphargus belly. You notice uh, it was my last night. Yeah, we didn't have good rain until my very last night, and so we got three or four glass frogs. My last night. Um, the other really cool one was uh, Sacatamia uh, orihuela, and they're a, a boulder specialist. Yeah, yeah, they yeah. were really cool. Um, kind of a bluish, purpley hue to their green. They weren't that vibrant lime green. And they're just stuck to these soft, these big boulders you know, along the edges of waterfalls. Yeah, the spray zone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And they look they look like you you mixed a, a barking tree frog with a, a glass frog. And these huge toe pads, these big beefy limbs. They were really neat. Oh. Um, cool. I, I saw some other species of Sacatamia uh, near Mendo, but they weren't yeah. quite that big. They're a little smaller, jelly-looking yeah. jelly things. Yeah. So you've got the bug. You want to do some more travel like that? Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, for right now, as it stands, we're looking at me and a couple friends are looking at doing uh, Guatemala this year. Yeah, uh, it's going to be a big uh, Bolitaglossa trip, uh, also with some other Ooh. other cool things. Uh, you know, want to look for Cretalosimus, um, the jumping pit vipers, um, Heloderma, and maybe some Abronia. Yeah, so cool. That place is on my short list too. Yeah. So uh hopefully that happens this year. Um if not, um I'm sure we'll come up with a backup. Um and then uh Peru, I think I'm gonna try to do Peru the following year again. Oh I've got right. some things that I need to get still. <laughs> <laughs> do you know how many people come back? Almost oh yeah, everybody comes back. Can't um, help it. Yeah. <laughs> Waited three I, years. It's it's time. It's time. <laughs> it is time. Yeah. 
Some people, I, I have people have been back three and four times. So yeah, I can see and why. I don't, I don't twist their arm. They just yeah. they have unfinished well, business. All you, know? you have to do is post a photo of a Langdorf's coral snake. Oh, that's, yeah. that's all it takes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I told somebody that this um, on the trip because I I only posted a I've only posted a couple things. Yeah, uh, and I I posted an, an eight foot musharana, mm-hmm. Clelia Clelia. Black as sin, eight feet, like an indigo, basically. Yep. I posted that, and I posted a picture of Langsdorfy and maybe one other thing. And I, somebody's like, well, you know, you don't really post that much. And I'm like, well, I really don't have to. I said, no. those two those two pictures <laughs> will fill the, a roster for the next, you know, two or three years. So, yep. that's all it takes. <laughs> so that's all it takes. So I'm glad to hear you're interested in coming back. Yep. So I'm, I'm sure there's some things we could help you find. So uh, it's kind of funny how that works. But uh uh, you know, that, that rainforest herping is just, um, it's a different world and, uh, it gets under your skin a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I'm hooked. Uh, you know, I, can't, <laughs> I, I can't, I can't give it up at this point. Well, I want I want to thank you for coming on the show, uh, and talking to me. It's great to see you again. And yeah. uh, I hope we get to spend some time in the field again sometime because I, I've enjoyed your company. It's been fun getting to know you. Yeah, yeah, and, absolutely. Yeah, and and thank you, thank you for giving me some some more ideas about these turtles because it's just a big mystery to me, you know. And so you really filled in a lot of uh, gaps. And now I now I really want to see one. I don't know how I'm going to make that work, but <laughs> one well, of these it, days I'm going to see one. Yeah, I mean, hopefully, you know. Uh, I get to keep doing the work here. Um, you know, if they do get listed, we will have to apply for, you know, new permits Ooh, and stuff. Yeah. So I don't, I don't know what the future is going to hold, but I think we're positioned in a pretty good spot to continue doing work with this species. So, uh, good. yeah, maybe if you ever make it down to the Southeast, uh, we might be able to make something happen for you. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> Ooh. All right. You said uh, all the clockwork in my head is in motion. Yeah. Well, maybe you guys could do like a places you never herped and maybe you could work the ASTs in there somehow. So we, we tried that one year and it's the okay. one time that we haven't caught turtles at this site. It was like the most oh. consistent one. Then we brought a group of 20 people there, hyped it, it never up fails. and got skunked. So <laughs> we might not ever do that again. <laughs> It, it never <laughs> fails, right? Yeah. yeah. That, that's Murphy's Law, I think. Yeah. Uh, all right. Well, uh, thanks again. Appreciate your, your talking to me and uh, wish you all the best for the coming field season. I guess you're maybe at a little downtime now, but things are going to pick up here. Uh, well, uh, it's it's picking up pretty quick. Usually pretty after quick. New Year's, um, yeah, I'm trying to get the rest of my indigo snake surveys done okay. um, because I, I as soon as we can in February – or as soon as we can in March, we'll start with you know, spotted turtle work. And I've got some snake projects coming up this summer. Um, yeah, I've got like three things going, three or four things going on this spring. So I'm going to be busy. All right. <laughs> well, so I really appreciate you taking the time out to talk to me then. Yeah, so. you, you caught me just in the nick of time. Uh, Whew, you you okay. caught me next month. I said, sorry, Mike, I'll see you in, see you in August. <laughs> I have to drive down there and track you down. Yep. <laughs> Holler questions at you from the bank or something. So. There we go. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks again, Ben. Yeah, you're welcome.
That's it for episode 57. Thanks to Ben Staganga for making some time to chat with me. And Ben, keep your fingers away from those giant chomper turtles. Thanks for listening, everyone. And if you have thoughts about the show, I would love to hear from you. And thanks, as always, to all of the So Much Pingle patrons. And if you would like to kick in a few bucks to help support this entertainment channel, you can do so via Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash so much pingle and so much pingle is all one word. You can also make one-time contributions via PayPal or Venmo. Just drop me an email to so much pingle at gmail.com for more details. And don't forget that you can find all of the recorded episodes and show notes at so much pingle.com. And you can also join the So Much Pingle Facebook group to follow the show and interact with me and some of my guests. And last but not least, you can reach me directly via email at so much pingle at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, and until we meet again, please take good care of yourselves, and don't forget to hurt better.